Beloved, as we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn to your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the second book of the prophet Samuel. The sixth chapter begins in the first verse. Let us receive the word of God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of the host, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on the new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ao, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart when the ark was the ark of God, and Ao went to the front of the ark. And David and the and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Who is the king of David? Who was told, King of David, the Lord has blessed the household of Abinadab and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Abinadab to the city of David, which rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, they sacrificed an ox and a faithful. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with linen and ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw the king leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in a place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food amongst all the people with the the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. You know, I'm always amazed at the richness and depth of Scripture. You can return to a passage over and over again, and invariably each reading raises more questions than it answers. Fresh examination of our most beloved passages brings new insight and deeper dialogue with every encounter. Now, contrary to popular belief, Scripture is not a roadmap which always lays out with clear boundaries and mile markers a two-scale spiritual journey nor is its prophecy intended to be a predictive panacea, a cure for all of our anxieties and uncertainties about the future. Rather, the most beautiful thing about Scripture I find is that it's an invitation. Its words invite us to meet God at the intersections of our collective past, the present, and our future, to receive what God's word for us is right now. In it, we recognize and remember that God shows up over and over again at the intersections of our faith and fear, our hope and doubt, our joy and sorrow. And when we accept the invitation to meet God at those intersections, new joy 
and abundant life often await us around every corner. As we meet God here today where our story intersects with that of David and Michal and the Ark, let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour your power. Grant us wisdom and courage so that as we ponder the possibilities of your leading through these words, we might receive the ways they offer comfort and challenge. Take the humble offering of this preacher and make of it what it needs to be, whether through me or in spite of me, so that you might be glorified, your people edified, and together we might draw a little closer to your kingdom come. And it is now with one voice all God's people say, Amen. It was a new day in Israel. The people were turning the corner of a past rife with internal division, political anarchy, and war with the Philistines. These changes, ushered in under the leadership of the newly anointed King David, culminate in the return of the Ark of the Covenant, the physical representation of God's power, presence, and preference for the people of Israel to the center of their social awareness, as it's escorted out of obscurity and backwater Bale Judah and into their newly captured capital city of Jerusalem. What unfolds on one hand is prime political theater. David represented a radical change in leadership style from his predecessor, King Saul. A popular military hero with a keen sense of how to rule, David threatened familiar institutions and power structures along with all those who had benefited under the regency before him. By intertwining his kingship with the unifying religious symbolism of the Ark, David appeals to the people's religious devotion and offers proof in his procession into his capital city that his leadership and reign are blessed by God. But while there are certainly political motivations for David's decision, the Ark of the Covenant cannot be reduced to a mere political symbol. Sincere and raucous joy accompany its arrival into the city because the Ark, you see, was proof that God was with the people still, even as they faced this unprecedented time of change, proof that God was able to take moments even such as those, and leadership from surprising and unexpected places, and new rituals and ways of gathering together, and make of them opportunity for healing, for hope, and for wholeness. Now, David is one of the Bible's more complicated figures, I have to be honest. He's an egomaniac with a seemingly insatiable bloodlust and a penchant for pursuing his own best interest most of the time. And yet scripture says he is also of God's own heart. But what I love about the David we encounter in this passage is his ability to take advantage of a strategic opportunity to usher people into the presence of God, the healing presence of God, following years and decades of communal trauma. And his reckless joy 
His willingness to literally dance like a fool in front of people abandons assumptions about how a king should behave and invites people to consider new ways of recognizing and responding to God's presence. Whatever David's political motivations, the Spirit of God moves in them, and maybe in spite of them, creating much-needed space for the people to remember and recognize and embrace the hope of God's abiding presence, the true source of their strength and joy. In his dancing, David becomes a conduit and conductor of that presence, his ecstatic joy an invitation for everyone watching to recognize that God was still with them, that God was still moving in their midst and inviting them to celebrate, to receive the full gift of that promise, even if it meant risking what was familiar and comfortable as they did. You know, like so many of you, I am anxious for the day that this sanctuary again swells with the sounds of great is thy faithfulness and the cries of infants freshly washed in baptismal waters. For the chance to be with one another again in this sacred space we share on the corner of 16th and P. And praise God, we know that day is coming. Yet, even as we prepare to re-enter in-person worship on Wednesday and continue entering and expanding in-person mission and ministry here at the intersection of 16th and P, I have to be honest, my mind continues to regularly return to those early days of the pandemic. Perhaps you remember them too. I remember the fear and anxiety we faced unsure of how we would remain connected to God and one another, let alone to our own sanity. Sound familiar? Feels like yesterday to me. I remember the questions and confusion about the science and our safety and the technology and the possibility. Questions about what online platforms we would use and what happened when they weren't fail-proof. Questions about how we were going to use a technology designed for workspace connection to stay spiritually and emotionally connected to one another. Would our neighbors file a noise complaint as we hit the fifth verse of 04,000 tongues to sing at our dining room table? Could we find God in isolation? Could we find God at the end of dot com? Like the Ark's arrival on the streets of Jerusalem all those years ago, this season has opened our minds and our hearts to new paradigms for being the people of God together. You know, we have been led by choir members who recorded audio tracks, then lip-synced to themselves singing and recorded that, all while listening to pre-recorded music in their headphones. Can you imagine? hard for me to envision. And yet they did it. They did it for our community. We've been encouraged by teachers and preachers and new members who, because of, not in spite of, this virtual format, have joined us in our worship and learning from hundreds of miles away. 
We've had people experience for the first time in their lives the living love of God and the liberating joy of knowing that they are beloved. We've been nourished and nurtured by folks like Rosa who packed communion wafers and cups into Ziploc baggies and small group leaders who showed up faithfully even when they themselves were Zoom weary to create space for support and prayer. We've been led by our confirmands and Pastor KC who helped them organize as they refused to join the United Methodist Church without challenging its complicity in harm and injustice. And we've been comforted over and over again by voices who reminded us that it was okay not to be okay and then gave us the space for that to actually be true. Like David, so many of you, so many of us have stepped into this season and risked being made a fool with technology we didn't understand and spaces that didn't feel quite right and watched our best laid virtual plans fall apart when the Wi-Fi signal wasn't strong enough. And yet somehow, often despite our expectations, even when it wasn't fail-proof, we found the presence of God was with us. Not just in our sanctuaries or familiar rhythms and rituals, but with us in the silence and stillness of the stay-at-home orders so many at first feared. We found that God was with us in closets and in, the, in quiet spaces where our praise and lament blended together as we listened for the voice of God. We found that God was with us as we dug our hands into the soil of our flower beds and lush, loamy vegetable gardens that would never have been tended if we weren't working from home, and found God at the bottom of bowls of water and boxes of supplies we've used to adorn our home altars. God was on the end of and I'm loath to admit it, many a group text and long lingering phone call. God was in the chat rooms where we celebrated sacred moments and we grieved what was lost. God was in backyard baptisms and clear plastic baggies that became conduits of God's living love at communion. I say all of this so that we don't lose sight of what we have worth celebrating. We have witnessed and remembered these last 15 months what is possible when we're willing to risk doing the unfamiliar, uncomfortable, or unexpected for the sake of opening up our hearts and lives to Spirit's leading. We've come to remember and learn that God's presence is ever available and dynamic, moving not only through familiar modalities, but also through new and often unfamiliar technologies and ways of being church. So joy, hope, healing, and sometimes just survival were possible. We have learned and relearned and learned again that God is with us even at the end of .com and because of it, beloved, lives have been changed. Our small group communities have blossomed. Our youth group flourished. 
People have fallen headfirst into God's love because of the risks we have taken these last many months. months. They have deepened their capacity to love one another. Even as we have done all of this in an unfamiliar and often uncomfortable way, the world has been changed because we accepted the invitation and God met us and led us. Now, I want to pause for a second, because in addition to the story of David's dancing, sandwiched into this scripture story of celebration is another story, a single line about David's wife, Michal. Michal was the daughter of King Saul and betrothed to David when he was first anointed by Samuel. And long before David was king, Michal was risking her life to save David's when he earned her father's ire. She was passed off as a pawn, used to be forcibly married so that David would be enraged by Saul. And is then when David becomes king, ripped from her home, following the brutal death of her father and brother, to become queen of Israel. While today's reading only says that she saw David's dancing and despised him in her heart, a few verses later we encounter a painful exchange between David and Michal about David's dancing. She upbraids him for his unbecoming behavior, suggesting that it was self-serving and unkinglike. Now we have to be careful here as we learn or hear for the first time the story of Michal that we don't assign malintent or ill will to her. After all, perhaps after years of being passed between kings and pretenders to the throne, she realized David's actions were risky and she was scared that her security and stability were threatened. It's possible she'd simply seen the politics of power corrupt one too many people she loved and had no more capacity to put up with David's pomp and circumstance and BS. The trauma and violence inflicted on her as the daughter of a dead despot and wife of an emerging demagogue was profound. It's no wonder she wasn't ready to join the party. She was grieving. She was, I imagine, braced for impact, not ready to embrace joy. And David, in this moment, suddenly shifts from one who is opening up space for people to encounter the living presence of God, and instead shames and rebukes her, unwilling to see in her pain an opportunity for God's joy to come to fruition. David missed the moment. He demeaned her arguments, and he abandoned her as he danced the merry band on around the corner and into what came next for Israel. Michael's place in Scripture terminates here, and we're told she died without children. The implication is that because David was so caught up in his dancing, he abandoned her in her grief as he moved into that new season of Israel's history without her. I wonder if this brief encounter, informed by but left out of today's lectionary reading, offers us a cautionary tale about how we turn the corner of this pandemic season. 
David's ecstatic dancing reminds us how important and pressing it is that we take every opportunity to open space for others to encounter the living, healing presence of God, especially after 15 months of deferred pain and grief. How important it is to open up those spaces, even when it means risking what we're familiar or comfortable with. We're trying new things along the way. Michael's story asks us to explore our unexpressed grief and trauma and the ways they keep us from recognizing God's presence in our lives. She invites us to remain open to the possibility of hope and healing and challenges us to do for others what David was unwilling to do for her to hold the space, to acknowledge the grief, to create room for the trauma so that she too might move with the whole body into the new life God desired for them. Together, they remind us that God shows up both in our ecstatic joy and in our overwhelming sorrow, and of our human propensity to leave people behind when we insist on our way or the highway. In the end, they both seem to miss the point and an opportunity for them to turn this corner together. They miss that God showed up in the both and. And that's really the point of the story, I think, that God shows up, whether in the Ark of the Covenant or the wild dancing of David or in the face of Michael's profound pain and fear. That God shows up in our anticipation and celebration when we're ready to move full steam ahead into the possibilities of what comes next and have clear vision for what we might do. And as we're mired in profound grief and sorrow, and need only to be held. God shows up even as we cling to our preconceived notions and assumptions of what is and is not proper, or when our intentions or motives might not be the most pure, when we're lost in grief and ensnared by fear. God shows up. Spirit, as this story reminds us, is always revealing herself in new ways, moving in unexpected places, opening up fresh opportunities for people to recognize and receive the promise of God's abiding presence and love. It may not come in behavior we deem becoming or in packages we prefer, but nevertheless, the presence of God enters into the midst of our moments and movements, interrupts our expectations, and invites us, encourages us, challenges us to live fully into the freedom it provides. All we have to do is answer the invitation. We are invited, Foundry Church, as the body of Christ to be for others conduits and conductors through which they can experience the profound joy and abundant life that God desires for all of us. That will mean that we risk hope and receiving joy even as we feel grief and sorrow. It means that we will have to be open to people's pain and the way it prohibits them from moving at our pace, even as we continue to set a course 
for our future. It means that we will have to challenge our preconceived notions and assumptions about what is proper and possible from worship to learning, to discipleship, as we move together around this corner and into the future that God is even now calling us into. It may even mean we take the risk of failure, of being foolish, so that others can experience and know the liberating love of God. Today's reading reminds us that we have a profound opportunity as we turn this corner together to continue creating space where people can encounter God's liberating love. Our role in this season isn't to be gatekeepers carefully deciding and defining for others what is right or proper or appropriate and how they find God in these days. Nor is it to shame others into joy or our vision of what joy might look like. Our job is to show up together again and again and remain open to the ways that God meets us when we do, so that as we enter this new season together, no one gets left as we go. As we stand at the intersection of where we've been and what comes next, we are faced with a crucial question. Will we embrace and celebrate the new ways and means that we have come to know God's love, that we've grown in faith, healed from old wounds, and discovered new dimensions of discipleship? Will we risk discomfort, distaste, and even foolishness for the sake of extending to others, both here in DC and around the world as far as spirit's reach might take it, the life-giving presence of God that we know resides right here at 16th and P. Will we meet one another wherever we are, ready to dance or still braced for impact and work and witness and wait with each other so that together we might be one body one witness, a conduit of hope, a conductor of joy, living love through whose life the whole world is set free. The choice, my beloved, is ours. Let's choose well. Thanks be to God. Amen.